Please turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4. You can find that on page 775 in the Bibles provided for you in the pew. Our last study in the book of Jonah. Many of you told me that this is your favorite uh, minor prophet. It's certainly mine too until we study the next one. Jonah is a favorite of many. It's a wonderful story. And uh, let me remind you of the story if you haven't uh, remember, if you haven't studied with us so far. In Jonah chapter 1, uh, God comes to him and says, I want you to go to your enemies and call out against them, preach. That's the Assyrians. They were a terrible group of people. They were horrendous in their treatment of human beings. He wanted them to go, wanted him to go to the largest city, Nineveh, and preach. Jonah went the opposite way, tried to hide in a ship, went down to the hold of the ship. And even though God tossed a storm on the sea and the waves threatened to to destroy the ship, Jonah was asleep, intuitively trusting the Lord, even though though he's running away from him. And then then the the sailors are mad with him. And and he said, if you want this sea, if you want this uh, storm to go away, you've got to throw me overboard. He thought that by committing suicide, he could get out of obeying the Lord. The sea calmed, the sailors were saved, Jonah was saved by the fish. Then he was taken in chapter 3 to dry land. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, I want you, I want you to preach this message to the Ninevites. Now, he had heard in the belly of the fish in chapter 2, he had remembered worshiping and that pattern, that rhythm, that liturgy of worship, and he'd remembered salvation belongs to the Lord. He was experiencing salvation from drowning. Now he goes, he's delivered to the dry land, and God says, I want you to preach specifically this message to Nineveh. I want you to tell them 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. Jonah liked that message. I think he thought that God had finally changed his mind. He'd come to his senses. I can preach that 40 days. It's still a little too long for me, but I'll give them 40 days, and then God will wipe them off the face of the earth. I will preach that. The problem is that uh, before the 40 days was up, before his three-day journey of hellfire and brimstone preaching around the, the city of Nineveh, after one day, everybody, the entire nation took a posture of repentance begged the Lord for mercy, and they were saved. Now, you would think that a man whose career it was to announce salvation belongs to the Lord, it was his profession. You would think that he would be happy about that. But just how did Jonah respond? We begin reading in chapter 4, verse 1. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. Why in the world did Jonah flee? Here is the denouement. Here is the answer. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, 
slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of our God will stand forever. Open our eyes, O Lord. Our eyes that are shut by unbelief or grief or anger or rebellion, open our eyes that we would see wonderful things in this portion of the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray it, God's people said together, amen. Last week, I watched a, a news story about a policeman in Pennsylvania, I think, who, who pulled over an Amish buggy. This is not a joke. I'm not setting you up for a joke. He pulled over an Amish buggy, not because the buggy was weaving, but because it appeared to have no driver. And on the video, you see the policeman open the door and out falls the Amish farmer who is intoxicated. And the horse was heading home. Someone had put this farmer into his buggy and slapped the horse on the rear end and the horse knew exactly where to go. So because the man was not technically driving, driving under the influence. He was under the influence, but he was not driving. The horse was pulling. They slapped the horse and sent the farmer home too. Now, you know, that's an all too familiar story about horses and knowing their way home. You know, we've watched plenty of movies with the warrior who's shot in the saddle or, the, or shot in the, on the back of the horse and he comes limp uh, back into the camp or or the cowboy who's shot and his, his, uh, his colleagues put him on the back of the horse and the horse finds his way home in recent, recently. I did a little research here and I saw some recent academic studies on whether or not horses know the way home. And uh, one study studied uh, 50 horses that were, 
or a number of horses were taken 50 miles away from their respective barns, and then they, uh, then they were left, and each one of them made their way home. Another uh, uh, researcher in Germany, like Dr. Bagel and her team, uh, mapped a number of horses, a thousand horses worldwide. And by Google Earth, they were able to somehow uh, cross-reference these horses that they were mapping. And they noticed that all, all at once, at some part of the day, every one of them turned toward one of the magnetic poles, two-thirds of them toward the North Pole, a third of them toward the South Pole, but all of them pointing toward a magnetic pole of the earth. And so these researchers have concluded, yes, uh, horses have this internal GPS system. They can imprint, they can map their pathway home by sights and smells and so forth. But they also have this, this, this sense in them where they know where north and south is. And so it's, it's not a fable, it's not far-fetched to put someone back on his horse, give him a pop on the rear end, and they will find their way home. Jonah, you remember, was falling beneath the waves in chapter 2. He's completely lost his sense of direction, not only spiritually, but of course physically as well as he's twisting and turning. And in his mind's eye, he says, I need to find, I need to find the, the temple. Which way is the temple? And in his mind's eye, he finds the temple and he, he begins to remember the liturgy, the practice of worship. And by remembering the motions of worship, the pattern of, of being in the presence of a mighty God and then and overwhelmed by that, and confessing his sin and hearing pardoning grace and, a, and, a, and, a, and, and direction for his life and going out with the blessing. He remembers that salvation is of the Lord. He gets his bearings again by, because of that liturgy that had, that had mapped his mind and heart. The temple served as a kind of north pole to him. And we said when we studied chapter 2 that this is what corporate worship must do for us as well. We describe it as retelling the gospel. We are holding up week after week the north pole of our faith, Jesus Christ. And no matter where you are in life, what you've experienced Whatever, whatever suffering, whatever disappointment, whatever breakups, whatever anger, whatever disbelief and doubt, we hold up Jesus as the North Pole or the Morning Star and say, come back to Him. Here is where you will find your guidance. And by regularly going through this liturgy of worship vocally and physically, we are mapping our way back to Jesus every week. And every week, as we see in the life of Jonah now in chapter 4, it should be reinforced to us. The gospel should be retold to us in such a way that no matter how counterintuitive it may be to where we are in life, we must remember, we must be convinced that God is a gracious God. 
and that he's proven it in Jesus Christ. Jonah quotes in verse 2, Exodus chapter 34, 6 and 7, a passage we reference all the time here. This revelation of God to Moses. When Moses was disoriented, he couldn't believe what his people were doing as they're worshiping a, a, a calf, a golden calf in the, in the, in the valley. And, and, and he's, he, he, he's disillusioned with them. He's even disillusioned with God. And he says, I need to know who you are. Who are you in the core of your being? Have you brought us out here in the wilderness to reveal who we will really, really are and then destroy us all? I want you to show me your glory. And God passes by him and says these words. While the people are still sinning in the valley, I am the Lord, the Lord compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy, and keeping loving kindness to thousands of generations, while punishing iniquity to two and three. Jonah only remembers the first part. Nahum will be the prophet that goes back to Nineveh after they have turned back their backs on the Lord, and he'll proclaim the second part of that, that God will visit iniquity on you. But here Jonah reveals why he did not go, would not, did not want to go to Nineveh. He knew in his heart of hearts it had been cut deeply into his mind and soul with frequent worship and reflection on the gracious character of God. He knew that if he went into this place, regardless of his motive, God is the kind of God who would save these unworthy people. It's too much for him. He tried to kill himself to keep from going there. And two more times he asked God to take his life. God's grace was too true to be good to Jonah. Isn't that the way we want to be? To have it be our reflex, our instinct, our default that no matter what we're experiencing, no matter what we don't know, we know for certain here is who God is. He is the God who is loving and compassionate and gracious and slow to anger, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. Well, this is the only way to, to have that cut deeply into your mind and heart is by regular worship. And this is, what we will dis this is what we will discover about God's grace. We will discover these three things that Jonah discovered, that Jonah remembered, that he knew deep in his heart, these three characteristics of God's grace. Number one, I say in your bulletin, he absorbs our self-righteous anger. I changed that. He atones for self-righteousness. Now, Jonah is angry. He is angry. He is livid. And he is livid and angry because he is self-righteous. I've said before that the secret, one of the major secrets to healing any relational outage is each person repenting of self-justification. 
If there's anything that we are naturally good at, that we are born with, it is the ability to justify ourselves in every situation. To view ourselves to be right, other people to be wrong. To view ourselves to be righteous, other people to be unrighteous. To view ourselves as deserving blessing and other people deserving judgment. We confess sins, we confess the little ones, we confess the private ones, but when we Usually, our default is God grades on a curve, and I'm on the top of the curve. I'm not as good as I ought to be. I'm not perfect, but I'm better than most. Jonah was in this position, and he was angry. Three times, verses 3, 8, and 9, he says, I am. Are you, Jonah, are you angry? And Jonah responds with a curse. Jonah effectively says, you're blankety-blank right, I'm no angry. I am so angry, I would rather die than live. I'm so angry at you for being you, God. I like it when you're you to me. I like it when you're you to my friends. But I hate it that you are good, that you are forgiving to my enemies, to these people who are different from me, these people who are going to come into my temple and worship with me. It makes me angry enough I could die. Three times he says that to the Lord. How in the world did he learn to speak so frankly with God in corporate worship? You know, the hymn book the hymn book of the, of the Old Testament was the, the center of our Bible, the Psalms. These are, Psalm means hymn. This is the hymn book. So the, 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 uh, the, the Old Testament people would get together and, uh, and uh, the, the, the leader would say, turn to Psalm 44 and let's sing it. And they would sing words like, Though our hearts had not departed from you, you rejected us. We are dejected. We are despised. We are, we, are, we are like sheep to be slaughtered. We are dying for you every day. They said that twice in that psalm, that hymn. They sang that to God. That's what they felt. It feels like we've been loyal to you, but you have rejected us. You've handed us over to our enemies, and we're angry about that. They would sing that in church. They sang a, a psalm like a, a, a hymn like Psalm 88 that has Psalm 44, at least has some resolution. But now I see that you are my God, you're my creator, I praise you. But Psalm 88 has no resolution. It is one long complaint, lament to God, and he says at the end, Effectively, you're not my friend anymore. My only friend is the darkness. Amen. Where did Jonah learn to speak to the Lord this way, this honestly, to pour what is inside the toxicity of his anger? How did he learn to have a tantrum, a lament before God? He learned it in worship. In a church where you can be honest, and say, in my heart of hearts, I know this is not true, but this surely is the way it feels, oh God. He learned it. 
And, and, and how is it that possible that a, that a holy God could accept, could hear these kinds of words from a rebellious, self-righteous sinner? What right does Jonah have to say that he is so righteous, he deserves to be angry with God, and he'd rather not live than have to tolerate God's presence and his words anymore? What right? How could he get away with that? How could God speak gently to him? Do you have a right to be angry? The same way the Savior describes the, the owner of the vineyard in Matthew 20, speaking to the ones who say it is not fair that these who have come in later receive the same pay that we receive, even though we've been working from the beginning and teaching about salvation by grace alone. He says, do you really have a right to be angry? The, the, the father of the prodigal son who, whose elder brother self-righteously said, you know, this man doesn't deserve this. You should make him a slave. Here I am. I have been good all of this time. And the father says effectively, do you really have a right to be angry? God answers. How is it that God can answer gently that kind of audacious, insolent, impudent, anger at a holy God. It is because he atones for it in Jesus. Remember, I read from you uh, Jacques Ellul, the famous sociologist, wrote a little book on Jonah. And he said, picking up on Brad's reminder to us of God's patience and our call to be patient, all this brings us to the very heart of God's patience. In reality, God bears it that man is a sinner. He abhors sin, but he cannot accept the loss of man. He suffers the evil, and not just because of the evil, but the evil itself, we might say, with truth, that God suffers the evil he has resolved to do. He takes it upon himself, the evil which was the wages of man's sin. He suffers the very suffering which in his justice he should have laid on man. We shall see that in, is in Jesus Christ that this is done plainly for us. God looking ahead at the Savior to whom Jonah was looking took Jonah's insolence, his self-righteous anger, and he put that sin on his son, Jesus Christ, who in theology we say propitiated God's wrath. It's just a fancy word meaning God turned his anger away from us by pouring it out on his son. We are free to tell God exactly who, what we think, to process our emotions with Him as sinful, as offensive as they are. And because of Jesus, He receives it, places the sinfulness of it on His Son that He might bear us up, having cast our burden on Him. That's how gracious God is. God is not only so gracious that he atones for our self-righteousness, he is so gracious. He disciplines our destructive emotions. God didn't leave Jonah in this place. God didn't walk away from Jonah and let him have his tantrum. He wasn't a passive parent. He disciplined Jonah. Jonah tried to run away from God. God sent the waves. God sent the wind. God sent the fish. 
God sent the plant. God sent the worm. God sent the scorching east wind. All of that, the Bible says, God sent in order to save Jonah, to turn him. He was a he was a believer, but God had to save him from himself, from his self-destructiveness of his emotions. Here is a man who is a threat to himself. He is desirous of suicide, and God intervenes, loves him too much to leave him in that place, but he also loves him so much that he's willing to let Jonah hate him for a while while he shakes his teeth out of his head, while he burns his head while he burns him with a scorching east wind. God goes after him. Just as God went after these Ninevites. You know, it's very interesting. We've learned from archaeology that, that about this same time, we can't map exactly the, 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 the hour or the day, but in the 760s, which was 760 B.C., 760 years before Christ, there was, a, which is about the time that Jonah would have lived, there was the, the, the Ninevites experienced, uh, after a long period of suffering, they had famine, they, had, they were having riots in their streets, they were losing wars, their, their economy was in jeopardy, and then there was a solar eclipse a total eclipse of the sun, total darkness on the heels of all of these other sufferings that they were experiencing in their society. And we have records of the Assyrians saying, we are going to be destroyed. We must repent, they use their word. So could it be that about that same time, Jonah shows up? He doesn't know about the solar eclipse or the riots or the famine, and he preaches a message that they are poised and ready to hear. Forty days in Nineveh will be destroyed. What would move them? What would move them to turn in repentance? Except that they weren't used to their God sending a personal messenger that would give them time. No God, no self-respecting God in their pantheon would say, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do to you, and I'm going to give you a 40-day head start to run away. No, we would just bring it. They would bring the destruction, and then it would be over. That's what they thought was happening in the eclipse, but the eclipse went away. And then this, this personal emissary of a God comes and says, 40 days you have to repent, and they turned immediately. Is that really the way God, would God shake people up? Does He threaten judgment? Does He put difficulties in their lives? Does He send storms in their lives? Does He drop boulders on their lives to get their attention? Yes, because He's gracious. Did you hear it in the hymn we sang, Amazing Grace? "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear. Is that really the grace of God, that He would make us afraid? Yes, He will make us afraid when we are too dumb to be afraid, when we're too arrogant in our unbelief, in our, in our self-consumption, our self-justification to fear Him. He may make us afraid. There's another great hymn. It's hymn number 53 in the Red Hymn Book. It's a hymn written by Francis Scott Key. 
the author of our, of our national anthem. Lord, with glowing heart, I'd praise thee. The, one of the latter verses is something like uh, praise uh, the, Savior, the, the Savior God who drew thee, wicked wanderer far astray, held a bloodsteel pardon to thee. Uh, bade thee look to him and live. And then he says, um, praise the grace whose threats alarmed thee. You hear that? Praise the grace whose threats alarmed thee. Grace has threats. Praise the grace whose threats alarmed thee. Rouse thee from thy fatal ease. Praise the grace whose promise warmed thee. Praise the grace that whispered peace. That's the grace of God. Maybe it's, it's the grace of God you're experiencing right now, although you are interpreting it as His judgment. You're interpreting these difficulties that you're experiencing in any way except that this is a gracious God who loves you too much to continue on in your self-justification or your self-worship or your self-reliance or your your arrogance or your materialism, your forgetfulness of all of the benefits He's brought to you, your only concern for self, and God is shaking you by His grace, alarming you, rousing you from your fatal ease, that He might remind you of the promise of salvation and forgiveness and whisper peace to you. That's the God of grace. That's what God had to do to me when I was in college. That's why this book is so special to me. I, I was saved as a middle schooler, and, and, then the, and then the people who had led me to Christ had a certain theology of do's and don'ts. And these are, there's a checklist that you're supposed to follow. If you follow that checklist, God will love you more. If you don't follow that checklist, God will punish you. I lived in terror of God, except that I got pretty good at the checklist that they put forward, which happened to be the checklist that they liked, and I happened to like them too. That's the, that's the, that's the deal with perfectionism, you know. You're, perf you're perfect about the things you like to be perfect about, and then you judge everybody else by the same standards. And I was pretty good at it. I, I learned how to work the system. I got good grades, got athletic awards. God obviously loved me. And I looked down on all those other people who were not wise enough or disciplined enough to follow the Lord like I did. And I got to college. I started living that same way, looking down my nose at other people, building myself up. I didn't know that the faculty, this, I learned this just a, a, a few years ago, the faculty saw what was coming. They knew the gospel very well in this college that I went to. And they said, you know, George is heading for a crash. And they prayed that it wouldn't be too devastating. You can't keep that up. Well, sooner or later, you're going to discover that you commit sins that God's not happy about and it's going to ruin your whole theology. Or your body's not going to keep up, but you can't keep up with the self-discipline. 
And it's harder to feel self-righteous. And that happened. My health, my grades, relationships, everything started going wrong. So I, what was I to conclude with the theology I had, except that God, I, well, I never was a Christian. At the same time, we were studying the Old Testament in one of the classes I was in, the one I was barely passing, and it happened to be the Minor Prophets. And at the beginning of the class, the, 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 the professor told, told us all to memorize Exodus 34, 6 and 7 that I quoted to you earlier. He said, I'm not going to tell you why. You'll make sense to you later. And then the last day of class, he comes to Jonah, comes to Jonah chapter 4, and he says, this is what Jonah knew. Jonah knew his catechism so well that even when he tried to deny it, even when he hated God for it, he could not deny it. That God in the core of his being is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and mercy. It broke through the stone wall of my heart and revealed to me a God I had never known, really. This God of the Old Testament and who gave Jesus Christ, I thought, for all those other people, he gave him for me. Crushed my self-righteousness and self justification, not permanently, even to the point that I went back and preached as a college student, as a senior college student in my home church. And after the church service, people come out and, you know, tell you it's a good sermon, whether it is or not. And they come out and they tell them this, this woman came out, the mother of one of our, of one of my friends who I had looked down on and judged as a self-righteous person. She came up to me and she said, that was a good sermon. It's about time you came off of your high horse. Jonah, I can feel with Jonah. God is so loving. He disciplines our destructive emotions. If you belong to him, he'll do it final thing and quickly is he reasons with unreasonable people, verses 10 and 11. We already noticed how gentle God is with Jonah in questioning him, but I want you to see again how offensive Jonah's attitude is. Even while, I've mentioned this earlier, even while Jonah is running away from God, he in his heart of hearts knows God is a gracious God. He's going to protect me in the middle of the storm. Oh yeah, the storm is sent to me because of my rebellion, but he's going to, he has this terrible problem of cognitive dissonance. He knows God's character so profoundly that even while he is in rebellion, trying to forget it, he cannot and, and, and it's really wicked when you see it here at the close. When, when God puts the question to him, Jonah, did you have pity? Did you have that kind of mother-like, womb-like, loving pity for the plant when it went away? Yes, I did. You had it because it was bringing comfort to you. You're so self-consumed. but yet you resent that I have pity toward those who bear my image, toward 120,000 children who don't know their right hand from their left, toward the animals that I have made. 
Should I not have pity on them? I have selfless pity. The same kind of pity that I'm extending to you. And you only have pity when I move your beach umbrella. You're pathetic, he's saying. Jonah's revealing, revealing of himself how pathetic and adolescent, self-consumed he was. But God gently probes until he breaks through Jonah's heart and brings him back. That's how gracious God is. And it's the gracious God that we learn about week after week, morning and evening, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, in our Bible studies, in our private worship services. We are attending to God in worship so that He might cut these grooves of His grace so deeply in us we cannot forget it even when we want to. I have a friend I've known for many years, and I know his parents too. And for a number of years, this this friend of mine was adopted by his parents. I think he was a toddler. He was old enough to know that he was being adopted and had had those those, uh, bonding issues that so many children can have when they're aware of what's going on. So every, every day, his father, a psychologist, and his mother, a nurse, every day they would tell him, you know, we love you. And even more importantly, God loves you. And He has a purpose for your life. Every single day, they rehearse that liturgy with him. We love you. God loves you. He has a purpose for your life. He rebelled against that for most of his adolescent years. For a period of time, he appeared to come back to the Lord, and he did come back to the Lord, but all the while, he had a secret life that nobody knew about, a terrible life of sin against his family, against his his wife, against his children. And then it was discovered and revealed, and it looked like everything was lost. There was no way his wife could love him again. There's no way his parents could love him again. It was so offensive, so egregious, so dark and evil. And those parents, with gritted teeth, continued to repeat that liturgy. We love you. God loves you. God has a purpose for your life. Finally broke through. That he really was loved by his parents. By the God of grace, he finally broke through. That cross was for him. That liturgy that he'd heard every day in his home and in his worship services, it broke through and took this undeserving Jonah back to Christ. He worked in his parents' lives too to make them realize like Jonah we need the same grace and God has it. Let us worship Him and never forget. Let us worship Him And may His Spirit cut those grooves deeply in our minds and hearts.
that the default is always the grace and love of God. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, there is no more blessed assurance than this, Jesus' blood and righteousness. And we have known from you, God, grace upon grace upon grace. Help us to live in it personally. Help us to imitate it in all of our relationships. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen.